0: Good morning. Good morning. All right, let's begin class with prayer. Father in heaven, it is such a privilege to get together and study about you and uh, draw hearts and minds closer to you as we practice your methods and principles. We ask that you will send your spirit to us and enlighten us, transform us, and enable us to be your representatives here in this, this world. We pray in your holy name. Amen. A couple of announcements before we get into the lesson. I wanted to remind people of the Power of Love training and equipping course that we will be putting on in January 17 to 19 in uh, Dallas, Texas. Uh, we have uh, over 220 people now signed up for the event, and uh, the goal of the event is to equip people to be able to tell the great controversy from its origins in heaven uh, to the creation of planet Earth, the fall of mankind, God's working through human history, the purpose of the cross, and ultimately the uh, consummation at the end, and, and ha- you can see that grand central theme that runs through it all, so you can see the puzzle pieces, and you can tell that story without anything that doesn't fit in, the, in your understanding of, of what's going on in human history that's the goal and then we will give you guys the resources where you can go out and present that at your churches see so you get a whole presentation package as well if you'd like to do that okay we are doing lesson number three in the quarterly ezra Nehemiah, and the title is called god's call and the memory verse is from ezra seven twenty seven, and it reads blessed be the lord god of our fathers who has put such a thing as this in the king's heart to beautify the house of the lord which is in jerusalem As you hear this, do you take it literally? God put this in his heart, or do we take this as the Bible writer attributing to God whatever happens, bad or good? They give God the credit for things. Uh, uh, You know what I'm talking about, right? What do you think? God was actually moving on his heart? I think so too. If we believe God put this in the king's heart, do we believe it is a general sense, in other words, God influencing people for good in the general sense of his providences, providing good motives of love in general, or do we believe that God put this specific action, conviction on his heart? In Genesis three fifteen, God speaking to the serpent says, "I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring." So we know that God is working on all humanity to put a desire for good in our hearts. Is that what's being talked about here in Ezra, or is it beyond that good desire a specific action that God is putting upon His heart? I think of it as an impression. An impression. You're talking about Cyrus, right? Yeah, the king, uh, the Ezra, who uh, Cyrus or Artaxerxes either one. Yeah, well, the the thing is, is, it was Cyrus's policy once he became king and took over the kingdom to let basically all of the captured groups go back to their original spots, and the Israelites were one of many that were allowed to go back to where they came from and rebuild their homeland. Okay, so again, do we see God influencing him in a general sense, just to be a good and merciful person who practices God's principles, or do we see this Ezra text referring to God specifically uh, impressing him to let the people of Israel go back to Jerusalem and bless the, the house of, of, of God there? That's that's what I'm trying to get to. Um, is, is there evidence in Scripture that God put things on people's hearts? Well, Daniel chapter 10. In Daniel chapter 10, Daniel begins to pray. He's praying because the end of the 70-year prophecy is is upon them. He's praying that God will fulfill his promise to bring them out of captivity into 70 years. And 21 days later, Gabriel comes to visit him. 21 days after he's been fasting and praying. Now, he hasn't been fasting uh, without food. It says for 20 days he didn't eat any choice food. So he was eating a bland diet for 21 days. So he wasn't going without food. Um, but anyway, at the end of the 21 days, Gabriel comes and says, "Since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before God, your words were heard from the very first day, and I have come in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom, or the prince of Persia, resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there by the uh, t- d- detained there with the king of Persia." So Gabriel's being resisted or opposed by the prince of Persia. Michael comes to help him. If you read on through, a little while later, uh, Gabriel says, I've got to go because not only do I have the prince of Persia to deal with, but the prince of Greece is coming, and I've got to oppose him too. What's going on? The end of the 70-year captivity. Daniel's praying for fulfillment. Gabriel comes from heaven. Light. Truth, love, coming to be impressed upon the heart of the king. But the prince of Persia and Greece is opposing him. Who are these princes? Are these the children of the king of Persia? Human children of the king of Thess being referred to here? Spiritual warfare. Yeah. So who are these princes? Amen. Well, Jesus uh, refers to, in John twelve thirty one to Satan as the... Prince of this world. So Satan is the prince of this world, the prince of the world of selfishness, of deceit, of lies, the father of lies. He's the prince of this world of sin. Now, is this the prince of the world that's coming to oppose him, or the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece? No, it says the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece, not the prince of the world. So if 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 Satan is the prince of the world, then the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece were likely who? Multiple wormwoods. Multiple wormwoods. Okay, He's referring to C.S. Lewis's book. This is one of Satan's minions that has. We have principalities and powers of darkness. The Bible talks about Satan has a certain organization and his minions and legions. We are legion. We are many. And so here are two leaders in regions of the world under Satan's evil rule. And so I view these as fallen angels beneath Satan. Satan is the prince of the world. He's are prince of Persia. He's got kind of authority to carry out evil in Satan's kingdom in the Persian area. And here's one from the Greek area. And they they join forces to oppose Gabriel. This is very interesting if you read about this. Because in verse 21 of the same chapter, Daniel 10, Gabriel tells Daniel... There is no one to help me fight against these guys except Michael, your prince. Why now, this is what I'm a good question. Thank you, Don. So, think this through with me, guys. According to Scripture, what percentage of the angels? went with Satan. (laughs) One-third went with Satan. That leaves how many in heaven on the good side? Two-thirds. Two-thirds. So we we, we have twice the number of good angels than bad angels if we believe Scripture. But Gabriel says, I don't have anybody to help me against these two guys. How come if we have twice the number of good ones than bad ones that Gabriel doesn't have any help? Because minds have already been influenced for evil. Yeah, but why? Why why is it only Michael? One one other being in heaven is available to help him. Where's all these other legions of heavenly angels? down? where are they? But how can that be? If you you got two to one out there, count all the guarding angels to begin with. Pardon? Isn't Michael the only one more powerful? Okay, this is where we're going.
1: (laughs) Okay. When
0: Moses was was dead and buried. We'll get to that. We'll get that in a minute. I told the Lord to rebuke you, and it was the end of the story. We're going to get Moses' resurrection in just a moment. But what do you understand is happening and transpiring here? A celestial battle, of some sort. Well, what kind of warfare is this going? Satan is the father of lies. We war against lies and selfishness, right? Truth and love are the prevailing powers of God's kingdom. Truth and Love. Gabriel, as far as we understand from inspiration, occupies what position in heaven after Lucifer's fall? Uh-huh. Our supposed position. Angel. Yeah, he's the um, we understand he took the position that Lucifer fell from. So, so as far as created beings go, is there someone that stands closer to God than Gabriel? He's one, of the, he's one of the covering cherubs. He's the, as far as created being goes, he stands closest to God. So closest to God means he has the greatest insights, knowledge of God's character, God's methods, the greatest light of truth uh, from the infinite source of truth. As a created being, he is the one most powerful in truth and most powerful in love of the created beings. <coughs> he's fighting against principalities and powers of darkness. He's fighting against lies and selfishness. There's no one to help me in this fight except Michael. Why? Because only Michael can bring more truth and love to bear than I can bring. And we are now moving beyond a created being, the only one, and create. there's no created being that has more love and truth available to bring to bear than me. I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. We have to go beyond a created being to an infinite being. We have to go to the creator himself. And Michael, in his pre-incarnate form, is Jesus Now, let's be very clear here. We don't take the Jehovah's Witness position that Michael, Jesus, was a created being. Oh, no. Jesus is fully God. Life original, unborrowed, underived. 1 Timothy 6.16 says that God lives in unapproachable light. It's not talking about photons. That's light of truth, knowledge. He's an infinite being. He's unapproachable by finite beings. We cannot process and assimilate infinity. It's beyond us. It's not beyond God. Since we can't enter into infinity, we, it, it's unapproachable to us. If God wants the closest unity with his created beings, and we can't enter infinity, what's going to have to happen? A member of the Godhead will have to leave infinity and step into linear time and interact with us on our domain. Christ has always been the go-between. Jesus has always been the member of the Godhead that would leave infinity and take on physical form. Prior to his his incarnation, where he actually became human, he simply manifested in the form of an angel. And is there biblical evidence for that? Go to Exodus 3. Exodus 3, Moses talks to God at the bush. But it says, The angel of the Lord spoke to Moses from the bush. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Who's the God? The angel of the Lord. Okay, one piece of evidence. More evidence. Jesus said in John 5.25 that the day will come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of Man and will rise and live again. Whose voice raises the dead according to Jesus? The voice of the Son of Man. Who's that? Jesus. That's Christ, okay? Well, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4.16 that the voice of the archangel is the voice that raises the dead. Is that the same voice as the voice of the Son of Man? And now to Moses in Jude, verse 9. Michael, the archangel, is the one who raises Moses from the dead. It's his voice that raises him. So this is simply Christ. And the reason why only Michael is available to help Gabriel is because only Michael, God, in, in this preincarnate form, has more truth and love to bear than Gabriel has. That's my understanding. Yes, Wendell. The text that you're quoting at the end of Daniel 10 and 11.1, good news, there is no one here except Michael, Israel's guardian angel. He is responsible for helping and defending me. The he in Hebrew is I am. The I am is responsible for helping and defending me. There you go. It's just further confirmation. Jesus, of course, on earth said... I am. okay, And so, yes, so there you go. So Jesus in his pre-incarnate form was Michael. Does this make sense why Michael was only available? Lots of other angelic beings were available. This was physical might and power. This wasn't physical might and power. This was a battle of truth and love versus lies and selfishness. Now, with that in mind, did God force the king to do what he wanted? Or did God foreknow... And thus he was able to prophesy that a king would arise who would be sensitive to the movements of God's spirit, God's agencies, and would respond positively. And thus he could prophesy it would be 70 years of captivity. And then the king will be responsive to truth and love and let you go. Did he force him or did he foreknow? Yeah, I don't think there was any force involved at all. Sunday's lesson, uh, first paragraph says we could say that Ezra was chosen for various reasons. He was willing to go, he was a leader, and he was skill, a skilled scribe and teacher. There are additional reasons that we could find as well, but there is one verse that perhaps best demonstrates why Ezra was given this task. Ezra 7.10. And Ezra 7.10 says, For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord, the law of the Lord, and to teaching its decrees... And laws in Israel was Ezra chosen by God? Yes, I think so. For what was Ezra chosen? Teach. To teach. Teach and lead. To teach and lead. Why was Ezra chosen? Because God knew his (laughs) heart. He was prepared for the task for which the Lord needed him. Did Ezra then? Are you saying did Ezra need to possess? Certain qualities, certain abilities, certain attitudes, certain dispositions, in order to be suitable for the calling that the Lord called him to fulfill. That was the next point, but first on Ezra. Do you agree with that or not agree with that? Okay. So, was Ezra, Ezra free to refuse his calling? Yes. Was he? Yes. Well, what about Jonah? Was Jonah called for the same reasons as Ezra? In other words, not the same purpose as Ezra. The same reasons as Ezra, meaning that Jonah possessed certain qualities and certain abilities and certain attitudes and certain dispositions that were best suited for the mission for which Jonah was called. Yes. And that's why Jonah was called. Yes. Was Jonah free to refuse the calling? Yes. did God do we believe God has foreknowledge yeah. did God not know Jonah was going to refuse the calling or did God know yes. do you think maybe that was the reason God called him <laughs> <laughs> seriously get your mind around this God knew he knew he was going to run he was going to run, and you knew he was going to run and get on a ship didn't he did God control Jonah's choices? Maybe, but did God perhaps control some weather circumstances after he was on the ship? <laughs> not to the fish and the well, not the fish yet, just the weather, just the weather. Okay, we're not to the fish yet. We'll get to the fish. I, I'm getting back to question your question, did, Noah, did, or me, did Jonah have a choice here? And I'm beginning to question my answer to whether Jonah had a choice here. Okay, you can question it, but let's walk through the process. Okay, Jonah made a choice not to just straight go to Nineveh, or do you think God programmed? Jonah's really a robot pretending to be a human. Is Jonah a robot pretending to be a human? Or is Jonah making choices? He's making choices. Okay, did Jonah have the choice to simply march off to Nineveh? (laughs) But he chose to run. Do we believe God foreknew it? I believe he did. I think this was integral to why Jonah was chosen. He was chosen because God knew he was prejudiced, he was biased, he hated the Ninevites, he didn't want a message of mercy and love to go to them. And so this was for a variety of reasons. God is simultaneously achieving multiple goals here. He, if you understand the story of Jonah, he's achieving a goal in the heart of Jonah. But he's also achieving a goal for the people of Nineveh. Simultaneously, It's brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. So I think he chose Jonah for some qualities, one of them being his hatred of the Ninevites. And the knowing he was going to run. And so he runs, gets on a ship. God control the weather. Bring a little weather pattern here. And then Jonah, remember the story. Jonah tells the people why the weather's bad. He interprets the reasons because I'm running. Just throw me into the sea. It'll calm down. jump. <laughs> Perhaps he did. So he jumps, or he gets thrown, either way. He's in the water. Now, who was Jonah to take a message to? What city? Nineveh. And the Ninevites worshipped Dagon, fish. the fish god. Now, do you think in any way it might enhance Jonah's credibility to have a giant fish deliver him with this message when they're worshipping the fish god? You see, I do. I think God takes into account where we are. There's no fish God, but he knew their mindsets. He knew their prejudice. He knew their biases. He knew how to approach them. And I think Jonah was selected for his. And I think this is just an example. But notice, did God again control Jonah's decisions? He did not. So is there a difference, as we think about this, when God calls a person for a task, for a duty, for a mission, do they have to have some qualities that God needs them to have in order to be called? Some qualities, whatever those qualities are. Is there a difference between qualities of character and gifts or skills? Is there a difference between fruits of the Spirit and gifts of the Spirit? Can God give people fruits of the Spirit, new character, without their cooperation or participation? Yes or no? no? Can God give people skills, abilities, or gifts without their choosing to be the recipient? Yes. 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 examples of gifting of skills in scripture Bezalel and Ola Olaib, I can't even say his name the two, the two that were gifted with the skill to build the temple or the sanctuary gifts of languages in the New Testament gifts of the, uh, the spirit we talk about the many gifts of organization and planning and all these different things and preaching and teaching how about Solomon's wisdom but this one Samson's strength. Did Samson choose to be the recipient of that strength? Or was his parents told, don't cut his hair. I've chosen Samson before he's even born. Now, what's interesting here, when God provides gifts or abilities, does God then control the use of those abilities? No. Get your mind around that. Did God give humankind certain gifts or abilities, such as procreation? Does God control the use of those abilities? Interesting. How many many Christians believe it's a divine act? God's in charge. God's making it happen. Mm, You should process that. Can a person use a gift from God for a purpose that is not in harmony with with God's design, plans, or intention. I think Samson's a good example of that. But if we look at the gift of procreative abilities, any type of sexual assault would be an example of that, wouldn't it? So what does it reveal? What I just described. God gives gifts, and he does give gifts, but he doesn't control the use of those gifts. What is that evidence of? What do you learn about God because of that? Freedom, choice. What else? That he, that he is love. That he is love. Why? Why does that reveal he is love? Well, we're not robots, are we? Can you go home and program your computer to love you? You can try to write a program if you know how to write programs to get your, but it, you can't write a program to love you. It's not possible. It requires freedom for there to be love. And this is one of God's design laws, how he constructed reality to operate. And God does not violate his design laws. His designs are perfect. They're perfect. There is no improving upon perfection. No improving. Love only exists in the atmosphere of freedom, and God wants our love, he wants our trust, he wants our loyalty, he wants our devotion. And you can never achieve love, trust, loyalty, and devotion by taking liberties, by threatening people, by coercing. Somebody takes your child and threatens to kill them if you don't love them. Will you love that person more? You know it's not possible. You will not be able to love a person who's threatening to kill your child. You will not love them more. You won't want to be close to them. You won't want them as your neighbor in heaven. You won't want to be in a universe with people who function that way. Do you really? No. It's can to only be achieved. What God wants can only be achieved through his methods, practicing his principles. And thus, when you understand control, God is in control of what God controls. When everybody, is God in control? Just step, God is in control of what God controls. And God controls himself and all of his laws upon which he constructed reality to operate. And they never change. They're constants. They're in a perfect, uh, um, construction for life and health to operate upon. And this is why it's taking so long to solve the sin problem. You see if the sin problem was merely like a human law problem somebody broke rules we've got to identify the perpetrator we have to hold him accountable we have to inflict punishment we have to destroy all of our enemies and wipe them out how long would it take an infinite god to do that I'm sorry, I'm sorry. No. If this was a might and power issue, if this operated like a human government issue, you have to have a, a judicial process, you have to punish disobedience, you have to kill the enemies, This it's done. Done. Ellen White wrote, God could have destroyed Satan and his sympathizers as easily as one cast a pebble to the ground. But if he'd have done so, he'd given a precedent for the use of force. Compelling power is found only under Satan's government. God's principles are not of this order. He would not use these methods. Truth and love are the prevailing powers. Truth and love. Truth and love. And under an atmosphere of freedom. Because it's the only way to win the heart. That's what Zechariah says. Not by might, nor by power, but by the way the Spirit works. says the Lord and the Spirit is the spirit of truth and love. God is eliminating sin. And in eliminating sin, he is doing it while sustaining his government, his designs, his constructions of reality, his methods. Satan wants to make things so bad, so horrendous, so corrupt, so vile, so disgusting, that God will get so frustrated that He will step in with power and make it go His way. And many people are looking for a God to do just that. And this is what this is one, of, one of the great deceptions coming upon the Earth. And you can see it in so many places injustices vileness disgust all kinds of horrible human treatment of other human beings and one day there's going to be an angel of light coming claiming to be Christ and he's going to come with melodious words and he's going to come with an offer of love and reconciliation and forgiveness but he's going to say and I don't want to hurt you I don't want to punish you but justice requires that if you won't repent if you won't worship me, if you won't love each other if you won't worship the way I've told you to worship then justice will require first to imprison you and take your liberties, and then ultimately, I have to kill you. And how many Christians will go, This is our God? We've waited for him. Especially if he comes back and says, You've been breaking my Sabbath from Friday sunset to Saturday sunset. And if you'd only worship on the right day and remember me as your creator, I wouldn't have to kill you. How many Adventists will buy that? Because that's the God they're looking for. So it says in Ezra, Ezra is one who devoted himself to studying and applying God's law. What do you think this means? Do you think it means he was serious about wanting to understand God, God's methods, God's designs, God's purposes, God's principles? Or do you think it means he he only wanted to memorize a rule book to be the best umpire for the Israel's societal, quote, baseball league to know the list of rules so he can call balls and strikes, safe or out on his society. What do you think he was interested in? When it says he wanted to study the law. <laughs> Many people think, well, he wanted to study the law so he would have an exact knowledge of all the rules you had to keep and he would monitor his behavior and then he would inflict, you know, the and this. no, I think he wanted to know God. Now, I'm frequently asked as I travel around the world, When I describe design law, people commonly ask me, do you think people in the Old Testament times understood design law? I get this a lot. When God spoke to Adam and Eve in Eden, right in the very beginning of the book, he said, you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, this is a quote from scripture, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Yes? Yes? death never existed, if death does not exist in heaven as a reality or a concept, how would they know what die is? I would suspect they would have asked, what does die mean? And I'm sure God would have said that means you don't live anymore, you don't exist. And I think most of us understand that we exist, we're alive, or we don't exist. So I think it has to do with existence, and I think they could comprehend that. I think these beings could comprehend that. I think angelic beings could comprehend existence or non-existence. So, I think that's, that's what. So, back to the question. You, you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. What's actually being described in the text? If you don't come with your filters, if you don't come with your human imperial law, if you don't come with the assumptions you've been told through, through certain uh, you know, Bible classes, what's actually said in the text? Does it say God will kill them for it? You'll break a rule and justice requires I, I kill you. Does it say that? What kind of law? would be an operation if in breaking that law, it causes death. What kind of law does that? If you jump off of this boat with 100-pound weights on your legs into the ocean, you will surely die. What kind of law does that? You jump off the Empire State Building, you will surely die. What kind of law does that? So in the very beginning, what kind of law is described? If you eat, you will surely die. This was no poison. This is a breaking of the trust relationship. And where does life actually come from? Does it come from a piece of fruit? So Adam was formed out of the dust of the ground. And God went over and got a piece of fruit off the tree, crushed it up, made some juice, dribbled it in his mouth, and he became a living being. Is that where life comes from? Life doesn't come from a piece of fruit. And many people get tricked into this. I had an email this week from somebody that asked me, he said, what about the tree of life? What about the tree of life? What do you think the tree of life's purpose was? Did life come from the tree of life? Or did life come from the breath of God? So what's the purpose of the tree of life? Do you think, and and of course, God barred the way of the tree of life, so it would not be an immortal sinner, the Bible says. And so some people say, well, if you only had access to the tree of life, you could live forever in sin. Do you think Tree of Life would keep people alive in the midst of a nuclear explosion? I ate of the Tree of Life ten minutes ago, and a nuclear bomb goes off in this room. I live right through it, because I ate of the Tree of Life. Or it will still vaporize me. Do you think a Tree of Life would prevent a beheading? Cut his head off, and that, we got a head up here, and this head's talking to us now. Because <laughs> that, that person ate of the Tree of Life ten minutes ago, and that person's still alive. Do you think that's going to work? It's not going to work. Do you think it would have stopped the rock from bashing in Abel's head? My understanding of the tree of life, dying, they said, the day you eat of the tree of not dying you will die. That's how it's described in the Hebrew. Dying you will die. We are dead in trespasses and sin. We have life, but it's not really eternal. We are slowly decaying and dying. We're aging, and we're fading away, and we're slowly disintegrating. And that's what Adam and Eve. That's what started with Adam and Eve when they broke the trust relation with God. And the tree of life, my understanding, only provides the physiological nutrients that prevent the body from decaying. That's so all it does. But it doesn't prevent beheading. It doesn't prevent shooting. It doesn't prevent, you know, nuclear vaporization. It Doesn't prevent any of those physiological things that happen when the, the laws of physics are being violated. So, what do you think would have happened on planet Earth? if there was the tree of life the proverbial fountain of youth existed on this planet do you think it would be governed and controlled by the righteous (laughs) the kindest the most gentle the one who would always turn the other cheek never force their way or do you think it would be the hitlers and the Stalins and the neros the one who would kill anybody to get what they want who's going to control it and then what gets perpetuated on the earth if that's the case more evil so God removed the tree because disconnected from the physiological benefits of the tree, their bodies will slowly decay. And so even evil people who aren't killed by someone else will not live eternally. Their bodies will decay. This is my understanding of it. So you must not eat the tree, you will surely die. This is natural law. It's design law that's being described. That's the point. There's no infliction from God. When David wrote the Psalms, I'm going to read you a Psalms, Psalms 19, 7 through 8. Tell me what he is describing and talking about. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. This a rule book? Do it or else? Or do you hear design law in this? You violate the law of respiration, tie a plastic bag over your head. First few minutes, you may not notice anything if it's a big old hefty bag. But then you're going to get lightheaded. Your fingers and nose are going to tingle and your fingertips are going to tingle. You're going to get confused. You'll hallucinate. You'll pass out and die. But on any point before you die, on that trajectory to death, because you're out of harmony with the law, you're breaking the law of respiration. On any point to that trajectory, if you simply remove the bag and put them in harmony with the law, what do they do? They revive. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. It's a design law that's being described. This is how reality works. What do you um, so? What do you hear in the Psalms? How about this one? Jeremiah wrote the following, and this is Old Testament. Just pointing out design laws all through the Old Testament. Jeremiah thirty-one. 31 through 34. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of of Israel, with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write them on their hearts. What kind of law can be written on your heart and mind? Is it really talking about opening up your chest Getting a, a tattoo artist to tattoo the muscles of the pump in your chest with a list of ten rules. Is that what it's talking about? I'm being, of course, purposely concrete here to show you the absurdity. Do you know most people think that it's talking about the Ten Commandments here? Well, what is the heart in Bible metaphor? Heart and mind. What's being described by heart and mind? Church. Character, individuality, your unique person, the deep wellsprings of your affections and and motives and, and methods. Is the heart, as being described in this context, part of a living being? Yes, it is. Is God's law a living law, or is it simply dead rules? Does the law of love operate the law of love, the principle of giving, the principle of beneficence. Greater love is no man that he give his life for a friend. Is this law of giving, is it, is it operational on stone, on parchment? Or is the law of love only operational in a living being? Does a lifeless rock, piece of stone, slab of marble, love? Does it give or receive? This is the law given at Sinai, written on stone. This is the old covenant list of rules. A diagnostic code, a tool to expose our sickness, uh, but having no power to transform and heal. This is why the new covenant was given. And the new covenant, I will write my law in your hearts and minds. I will store the living principles that I constructed reality to operate upon inside your being. This is design law in the old testament yes i think god's spokespersons understood what was transpiring what the problems were not every person any more than any person since christ came understands today tuesday's monday and tuesday's lesson this will be fun for for many of you monday and tuesday's lesson is about the 70 weeks and 2300 day prophecies anybody ever heard of those <laughs> First off, why does the prophecies of Daniel come up while studying the book of Ezra? Because, exactly right. Because in the Daniel 9, 24, and 25, it says, know, therefore, and understand, from the time that the word went out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the time of the anointed prince, there shall be seven weeks and 69 weeks and so forth. So the starting point for this time prophecy is the, uh, is the time when the, uh, the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. And that decree is recorded in Ezra. But Ezra records three decrees first decree in the first year of Cyrus, about 537 B.C. is the first decree. The second, and that's in Ezra 1, 1 through 1-4. The second uh, decree is the reign of Darius I at 520 B.C., recorded in Ezra 6, 1-12. And the third decree is in the seventh year of Artaxerxes uh, in 457 B.C., in, recorded in Ezra 7, 1-26. through 26. So Ezra records three decrees from three different rulers at three different times about rebuilding Jerusalem. How do we know where to start a time prophecy? Which one do we use? Well, the angel said to Daniel to start at the time the degree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Restore and rebuild. The first two degrees gave authority to rebuild, but the third decree also restored their civil government. The authority to govern themselves. The first two did not. So the restoration was really not complete until the third decree, and so that was 457 B.C., And you guys know the Bible prophecy, a day and a year principle, a day represents a year. So if we start at 457 BC, the first segment of 69 weeks or 483 years ends in 27 AD. And the 70 weeks ends in 34 AD. And it says in the middle of that 70th week uh, between 27 AD and 34 AD, it says in the middle of that week, the oblations and sacrifices or the sacrificial system we brought to an end. And what happened in the middle of that week? Christ was crucified. And so we find that this really is compelling because it meets with historical timelines in which Christ came and was our uh, Savior, putting an end and fulfilling the meaning of all of that symbolic stuff and being the culmination of all that symbolic stuff. But the Bible also says that the 70 year period, the 70 weeks, excuse me, the 70 week period uh, is cut off from a larger portion, or a larger prophetic period, which is the 2300-year prophecy mentioned in Daniel 8.14. Thus, 457 B.C. is also the year we start the 2300-day prophecy, and that ends in what year? 1844. Daniel eight fourteen twenty three hundred 2300 years in the sanctuary will be cleansed. Well, what is this referring to? What is happening? What is God telling Daniel about? Well, you guys know in 18, uh, before 1844, in the eight, or 1820s or so, William Miller, a Baptist preacher, believed that the sanctuary was, re- was referring here in this text, was referring to the earth, and he began preaching that God was coming back in 1844 to cleanse the earth that was the second coming of Christ. And this led to the Great Disappointment of October 22, 1844. In the aftermath of the Great Disappointment, followers of Christ reexamined the scriptures and discovered that nowhere does the Bible teach that the earth is the sanctuary. And they, ref- they found something referred to as a heavenly sanctuary. And this led to a doctrine called the investigative judgment. So, as with every Christian doctrine uh, it, it, that, that we recommend people examine, you can teach every Christian doctrine through one of two law lenses. You can teach it through God's law functions like human law. System of rules without consequence unless the ruling authority holds you accountable, has a judicial process, and then inflicts punishments upon you. That's the human law model. Made up rules. Or you can view it through design law model. God is the creator. He's the builder of reality. His laws are those constants upon which life are constructed to operate. All of them. All of his laws operate this way. Now, when you come to the investigative judgment doctrine, sadly, the the common view taught in the Adventist system is through the human law model. And it goes something like this sin is a legal problem. It is breaking God's law. God established his law. Breaking God's law, though, requires just infliction of just punishments. God sent his son because he loved us to be our substitute, and he placed all the sins upon Jesus from all time, and he punished Jesus and executed Jesus in our place. Jesus uh, is now in heaven and acts as our high priest, our legal defense attorney in the heavenly courts, pleading our case by presenting his merits or blood to the heavenly judge. We must confess our sins and claim the legal payment of Jesus uh, to our account. And in heaven, Jesus goes through the legal records and erases from the historical records the deeds that we've done wrong, that we've applied his blood to. Thus, in the courtrooms of heaven, when the judge opens the record book and our records have been cleansed by Jesus, we are adjudicated or declared to be righteous in a legal sense, even though we're not righteous in a real sense. If we forget some sin and don't ask for it to remove from the book, it remains on the book, and God is required to legally hold us accountable and will still punish us and kill us in the end. But if we only have one remaining, that will be a very brief punishment because the rest have been eradicated. Okay, And then you still die in the end because God is a just God, and he won't let you off if you forgot. (laughs) Or... If you've never applied his blood to your account, you have the whole long list. You suffer longer as he inflicts more days of torture upon you before he kills you. Does any of this sound wrong to you? Yes. Oh, yes, Good. Because it's fraudulent. This is all based on Satan's lie about God's law. I'm not saying the investigative judgment is a lie. I'm saying this legal interpretation is based on the lie that God's law works like human law. It does not. And thus, and thus, if you accept that lie, then God's government runs like a human government, and God is put in the role of being the source of inflicted pain, suffering, and death. Ken. Lest anyone think that doesn't have a practical role in someone's life, my former mother-in-law spent the last six weeks for, for conscious health, trying to ask forgiveness for every possible thing that, had possibly, that she had done wrong. Yeah. So let's look at this through the design law view. When Adam and Eve sinned in Eden, did God get changed? Yes or no? Did God get changed? No. no. Did God's law get changed? No. Did the actual condition of Adam and Eve get changed? Yes. Then if the species human is to be saved, restored into oneness with God, does God need something done to him? No. Does God's law need something done to it? No. Does human beings need something done in them? Yes, Yes. so whatever you describe the mission of Christ, the action point, the place of the effect is in the heart, minds, and characters of people. That's the place that has to have an effect because that's where the problem exists. Satan wants people to not realize that. And so he teaches this penal legal thing and he removes the problem from your heart and mind into a courtroom in some it, it, uh, um, it, uh, heavenly place way off, far removed from you, so, that you claim all this stuff is happening by your representative in the courtrooms in the heavenly kingdom, but nothing's happening in you. This is the danger. So, if we think about this now, what kind of war is being waged between Christ and Satan? Revelation 12, there was war in heaven. Michael, nations fall against a dragon, dragon fall back. The word war in, in the Greek is polemo, from where we get polemic. It's a war of words, it's a war of ideas. Satan is the father of lies. Remember, if you believe lies, it breaks the circle of love and trust. Satan lied about God. He undermines our trust in God, incites rebellion and fear and selfishness in the heart. Jesus said, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Think about this war. Paul, 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5. For though we live in the war, we don't, world, we don't wage war like the world does. The weapons we have have divine power to demolish strongholds. And you'll notice we demolish every argument, pretension that sets itself up against central issue in the war the knowledge of God and take captive every thought. So if you have a war over arguments, pretensions, knowledge, and thoughts, where is the war being fought? Remember that. The war is in the minds and hearts of people. I will write my law where? Hearts and minds. Okay. Now with that in mind, what kind of war is being fought? Go to Daniel chapter 7, verse 21 and 22, talking about the little horn power. And it says, I watched and this horn was waging war. Do you know how often that I've heard preachers preach on this text and they talk about the persecutions of the dark ages, the physical stuff. This was not the war. Oh, yes, they did that. It was horrendous. It was misrepresenting God. But, but all those things were really infecting minds. And they were happening because they believed lies. And the lies they believed were God's kingdom runs like an earthly kingdom. And that when somebody does wrong, it's righteous to kill them for doing wrong, to burn them at the stake for not believing the right thing. It's all based on this imperial view of God in waging war against the saints and defeating them, defeating them until the Ancient of Days came. I'll read you the NIV first. And pronounce judgment in favor of the saints of the Most High. Do you hear the imperial view in this translation? The imperial view, we have a judicial magistrate, he's looking at the records and he gave a pronouncement of judgment. He pronounced judgment. That's imperialism. That's the false law view coming in. Let me read you the same text out of uh, the King James, until the ancient days came, and judgment was given to the saints of the most High. Judgment was given to the saints of the Most High, or pronounced judgment and th- well, if you look up the Hebrew, the word actually means to give or to impart something. What kind of war is going on here? A war for your mind and heart over who you can love and trust. You've been lied to. You have all this miasma of distortions and misrepresentations and confusion. Uh, You're lost. You don't know which way to go. What do you need? truth. Truth, which will give you discernment or judgment. You need the capacity to make a right choice. You need judgment. And this little horn power is winning the war until judgment is given to the saints of the Most High. And when you have been given judgment, you can see the evidences and the truths, then you can reject the lies, and you can choose the truth, and the truth will set you free. This is what's going on. So, this is a war of ideas, a battleground for your mind. Now, your hearts and minds, the Bible has another metaphor for describing your hearts and minds. What's another metaphor for your hearts and minds? A dwelling place for... A temple or a sanctuary. 2,300 days until the temple is cleansed. Well, at 1844, there's no earthly temple made out of stone. Is there still a spirit temple? Does the spirit temple need cleansing? Do you need judgment imparted to you? So consider Paul's words in 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 4. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and being gathered together with him. So he's talking about the end time events. These are end time events. And what's going to happen before the end of time? This is what he's talking about. We ask you, brothers, do not uh, become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy report or letter supposed to have come from us saying that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of sin or the man of lawlessness It says man of lawlessness. Think of that. We should come back and unpack just that word. Man of lawlessness. In fact, I'm going to take a moment on that. Sin is lawlessness. What does that mean? Breaking rules or operating outside of God's design? This is the man who wants you to not embrace design law, who wants you to be lawless, to be outside the law. This is what it is. So, this man of lawlessness is revealed. The man doomed to destruction. Why is he doomed to destruction? For the same reason a person who jumps off the Empire State Building is doomed to to die. When you're outside the laws upon which reality is built, there is no life there. You cannot have physical health in violations of the laws of health. It's not possible. This man is doomed to destruction, this being, because he insists on going outside of the laws upon which God built life to operate. It's very straightforward. So, man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped. Now, get this. So that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, this is eighty sixty four. This is 30 years after Christ's ascension into heaven. Do you think... 30 years after Christ has ascended victoriously into heaven that this man of sin rides up into heaven knocks Jesus off his throne and begins to reign from heaven so is the temple being talked about that this man of sin sets himself up and proclaims himself to be God is up in heaven it's the spirit temple folks now if this man of sin now how did he get himself to reign what does Paul refer to it he's talking this is the same exact event of Daniel 7 the little horn power waging war and he's winning How is he winning? By getting us to believe lies about God. That we believe that God's law, and this really took root. It was already happening in Paul's day, but it took root and became orthodox when Constantine converted. When Constantine converted, then the entire Christian world almost instantly, but very quickly, began to view God running his universe like Caesar runs Rome. God's laws work like human laws. This, This idea of imperialism comes in. And once you accept the idea that God runs his universe like Caesar runs Rome, God becomes a source of pain, suffering, inflicted um, torture, death. God's the one who needs to be paid. There's some legal penalty that has to be done. Somebody needs to assuage his wrath and anger. The whole corruption of Christianity stems from this. And the minds, and we go into the dark ages. And so God, looking down the corridors of time, says to Daniel, there's going to be 70 weeks, 490 years for your people. In the middle of that last week, Messiah is going to come, he's going to complete the work necessary to save the species human and do away with sin. But there's going to be a counter-attack from a little horn power, the man of lawlessness, who's going to misinterpret and distort everything the Son of God does. And so, so, so successful that he will corrupt and infect the spirit temple and he will reign in the spirit temple proclaiming God is like him. And the whole world will wonder after the beast and, and they will worship the beastly system of imperialism and inflicted pain and suffering. It'll be 2,300 years until enough truth is recovered for people to free their minds from these lies. And then the last day message will go forward. Fear God and give glory to him. Be in awe of God. Don't be afraid of him. Be in awe. Revere him. Revere God and give glory to him. Reveal his character. For the hour of his judgment has come. The hour in human history for people to finally realize God is not an imperial dictator. God is the creator. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that in this. Come back and worship our designer and creator. Stop worshiping this imperial dictator that has taken root in the hearts of minds and contaminates the temple. Big piece of the investigative judgment is our investigation of the evidence that God has revealed and rejecting the imperial lies and coming back to worship him who made the heavens, the earth, and the sea. This is a big piece. This time come. This is the message that's to go forward. Unfortunately, Satan attacked our church when this message was to come forward. In 1888, this was what was really to happen, the righteousness by faith message. Notice the righteousness by faith message. 2 Corinthians 5.21. He who knew no sin became sin for us. Substitution, guys. I believe in the substitutionary death of Christ. People will accuse me constantly of rejecting it. No, Christ is our substitute. But here's why. Keep reading the verse. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that, here's the reason, we might become the righteousness of God. It's for restoring us to righteousness. Actual, literal, real. Restoration, healing. It was rejected. That was the 1888 message. It was rejected by many in leadership, and they took the penal legal imperial human law model, and it's being taught, and it's still taught in our church, that it is you are declared to be righteous even though you're not by faith message that you get a legal declaration in the courtrooms of heaven and in the books of heaven and the judicial investigative legal process going on up there, God will declare you righteous even though you're not righteous on earth. And I said to the theologians I was talking about, so God's lying. He's declaring me to be righteous, but you're telling me I'm not. So he's going to say something to be one way when it's actually the other. But it's legally that way because he's looking at Jesus' record, and legally he's able to say it because you've claimed the legal blood of Jesus. And so legally he's saying you're, even though you're not. This is the corruption form of godliness with no power. This is also confirmed, Daniel 8 14. Same, another, another text in Scripture describing the same event is Malachi 3 1 through 3. Notice, then suddenly the Lord you seek will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant, that new covenant, right, my law in your heart and is going to come to his temple. The one you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap. What's that? What's a, what's a, a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap do? What do they do? They cleanse. This is a cleansing process. Notice what happens. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites. And refine them like gold and silver. What's being cleansed at the 2300 days? The people, the hearts and minds, those, and Peter tells us, we're the priesthood of believers. We are being restored to righteousness. So God is cleansing his people from the lies about him, which keep us from trusting him. And when we trust him, he actually cleanses us from fear and selfishness. And we get new hearts so that we don't love our life so much as to shrink from death. We are perfect in our love and trust of God. This is the perfection, perfection of character, of maturity. Examples in Scripture, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who would not bow the knee. They weren't sinless, they were perfect in their love and trust. Daniel in the lion's den, Job chapter one, he's perfect and righteous in all his ways. No one on the earth like him. He wasn't sinless. But they have been restored to a perfect heart, trust relation with God. That's the Bible of perfection. Noah's called the Lamb of David is called Yes, yes, there we go. And so what is recorded in the records of heaven? So one aspect of what's happening is happening in you right now during this investigative judgment time frame. The other, what's actually in the record books of heaven, this was uh, written by one of the founders of the Adventist Church who helped form that investigative judgment doctrine and was written, Remember, your character is being photographed by the great master artist in the record books of heaven. As minutely as the face is reproduced upon the polished plate of the artist, what do your books of heaven say in your case? Are you conforming your character to the pattern Jesus? So what's recorded there? Your individuality, your identity, your, your personhood, your unique character. And so what is the other aspect that Christ is doing for all those who've died trusting in him? Well, let me ask you your beliefs. When at the resurrection of the righteous, all the righteous from all history raised to meet Christ and we join them in the air, will they rise sinful? Or perfectly sinless? What's your answer? What's your belief? There's three of you that had an answer. Sinless, right? Perfect. Did they die in a perfectly sinless state? No. Does that mean if they're going to rise in a sinless state, something needs to happen in them before they rise? Will the thief who died trusting Jesus and was promised eternal life in paradise, will he rise with the heart of a thief? Martin Luther, who was an anti-Semite, hated the Jews his whole life. Died hating the Jews. Do you think he'll rise hating the Jews? Does something have to happen in his heart before he rises? This is the work of our heavenly high priest examining the records, the data sets of each individuality who has put their trust in Christ and given him keys to their heart and invited him in. He knocked on the door and they said, come in and sup with me. And he comes in and he uh, reproduces his perfection in them. Eliminating also when they rise, they rise in sinless perfection. That's, a, in my view, the easy part. That could happen probably in minutes for an infinite God for all the dead. So it's not really the delay from 1844 to now is because of Him doing that work and the data sets of the those who are sleeping. You know, Paul talks about that in Thessalonians that when Christ returns, He brings with Him those who have fallen asleep in Him, he brings their individualities, their identities back, downloads them into new hardware, and they. And breath of life they live again. But right now they're in, a, they're in a, a non-operational state, but that data is there, and I think Christ investigates who, who trusts him, who has given me permission, who trusted me. No, you didn't. I can't do anything for you. You've closed your heart to me. You did. Oh, and then he investigates what needs to be fixed. And he fixes those residual elements that we didn't in this journey on earth get the victory over prior to our death. But he is also working in the living To bring a people to that perfect place of love and trust in him. That we won't, and it says in Revelation 12, uh, 12, 11, these are they who did not love their life so much as to shrink from death. That's what he's trying to perfect in our hearts. Not that we have every fact of every Bible text right. I don't think anybody at the resurrection is going to know every detail of what the scripture actually means in its perfect understanding at the time of the resurrection. I don't think it's going to be. I think we'll all have things that we misunderstood in the scripture. But we will have right God's character, God's methods, God's principles, and we will have been one to trust, and we will love God and others more than self. That will be established in the righteous. There is more in the lesson, but we don't have time to get to it. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much that when Adam and Eve corrupted themselves with fear and selfishness by distrusting you, that you sent your son to become the second Adam, to take up humanity damaged by Adam and to perfectly reproduce your design, methods, law in the humanity that he lived out perfectly. And now we ask that your spirit will take his perfection and restore it in us. So it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. That you will do that new covenant experience. Put your laws on our hearts and minds, your, your motives, your living principles that we can leave here free of fear, free of the domination of the of the fallen state. And we can actually live to glorify you in this day that people are trying to see and make the right judgment about you. We pray in your holy name, Amen. Amen.